In the book, The Spiritual Awakeners, the author looks back at past spiritual revivals and has identified five phases in the revival process. First, he says, revival is preceded by a period of spiritual apathy and gross sin. Second, he states that a remnant of God's people become conscious of this apathy and gross sin and in turn repent and pray to God. Third, preachers arise declaring the holiness of God and exhorting the people of God to pursue said holiness. Fourth, revival occurs within the church and evangelism occurs with those outside of the church. And five, or fifth, the revival strengthens God's people for future trials. Certainly in America, we are between the second and third phase. The worldwide shift to embrace moral and cultural relativism shows the great spiritual depression plaguing this nation. The embracing of moral anarchy has produced abortion, a growing drug culture, child abuse, sexual exploitation, greed, lust, materialism, homosexuality, and violence. Believers, you and I must be salt and light in this world of moral anarchy, and we must refuse to minimize the sins of our culture. Now here in Psalm 80, Israel is also between the second and third phase of revival. God is angry, the fences are broken down, the land is ravaged, burned, and uprooted. And as a result, there is a renewed call to repent. The people are praying for restoration and revival. They are weeping over their condition, and they're crying to God to deliver them. As we approach Psalm 80, we begin with the superscription that tells us that it's penned by Asaph for the choir director. The psalm is set to the melody of Il Shoshanim Eduth, which translates to the Lily of Testimony. So as we consider Psalm 80, we're going to see that this is a prayer for national revival. A prayer for national revival. In verses 1 through 3, we'll look at the prayer. In verses uh, 4 through 7, we'll look at the petition. And then in verses 8 through 19, we'll look at the plea. So let's begin in verses 1 through 3, and let's consider the prayer, the prayer for national revival, Psalm 80, verses 1 to 3. O give ear... Shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. God is called in verse 1 to hear this prayer. He's identified as Israel's shepherd. And lest we get too familiar with God, he also dwells between the cherubim. So here he is, the shepherd of the sheep, but he's also the high and holy one who dwells between the cherubim. And from there the psalmist begs, shine forth, literally appear, because when God appears, it means redemption is near. The petition or the prayer continues in verse 2 for God to stir up his strength to come and save, to come rescue and deliver us. The cry here, the prayer here is for God to make a move. And the psalmist knows that Yahweh has certainly intervened in history before and in the life of his people. And so he's 
praying, God, stir up your strength, and as you do so, our enemies will be defeated. God, come and visit your people with salvation. The theme of this psalm is now given in the refrain, repeated three times, here in verse 3, and verse 7, and then verse 19. The call to restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Restore us means return us. It, it, it's a cry to be restored to a right relationship with God. To be restored means to see God's face shining. You see, when God is angry, He turns His gaze away. And when He is gracious, He returns His gaze towards us. Hence the ironic benediction of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So God's face shining is a sign of salvation and right relationship. When God looks upon us, He lifts His wrath and no enemy can stand. And at its heart, revival is nothing less than the manifestation of the presence of God in our lives. So that's our prayer. Now the petition in verses 4 through 7 says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Notice the sorrow in verses 4 to 6. He identifies God now, not as shepherd, not as the one between the cherubim, but now as the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of these angelic armies who do His will. And so in this petition, the psalmist is asking for divine intervention, and he's stressing the power of God in battle. The question addressed is, how long? How long? What's the duration of your anger against the prayers of your people? God's people have poured out their tears. Their tears have, they're literally feeding on their tears. It's become their bread and their drink. And it's come in large measures. And the psalmist here sees God as, as the source of this massive bitterness. The reason they're feeling pain, the reason they're feeling wrath is because God's wrath is against them. They've embraced the wickedness of the land. And so now God has brought his wrath upon the land. Beyond God's anger, beyond Israel's tears, is the ridicule of her neighbors and enemies. Again, God in his judgment is the source of this distress. Notice it says, you make us an object of contention. You know, when a, when a nation is being derided by other nations and being mocked by other nations, we need to consider what is the source of that, and the source is God. You make us. Though so those nations bordering Israel, though the, the, the enemies around her, she had become an object of contention to them. They're laughing at her. They're mocking amongst themselves Israel's weakness and deriding her because of it. But again, behind it is God. God is the source, and He's doing this. Why? Because of the moral anarchy that was running rampant in the nation. And it was a measure to cause the people of God to cry out to Him. 
So the question of this section is, how long will this go on? How long will God's wrath be upon his people? How long will they weep? How long will the enemies uh, scorn and deride? Well, you know, to be honest, that same question plagues us in the absence of revival. When God turns us over, when God turns this nation over to its sin, this is a sign that his wrath is upon us. Read Romans 1, 18, in the next several verses. God gives them up to their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. And that means they've become the object of his wrath. As 1 Peter 4, 17 tells us, though, when judgment begins, it begins in the church of God. Before the judgment hits the nation, it's going to first hit the church. So it's a time for weeping. And when, when we weep over sin, God in turn gives us mercy. He gives mercy to the godly remnant. And those tears, he will eventually turn to joy. Now let's consider verse 7 and see the salvation in this petition. So the petition begins with a statement of sorrow. Now it concludes with a statement of salvation. Verse 7, O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Such an observation brings us to cry out again for God's restoration, for God to shine his face, for God to save us. And the only difference between verse 7 and verse 3 is the addition of God's name uh, here. O God of hosts. The host, again, denotes God's warriors, God's angelic army who gather before his throne. And really, it's a call to arms, a summon for God to join the battle. And when God joins the battle, let me tell you, his people, we as his people, will be saved. This is when revival comes. When God answers the petition, when God marshals the armies of heaven, then comes the revival. Now verses 8 through 19 deals with the plea. Again, we're looking at a, uh, a prayer for national revival. Verses 1 through 3 is the prayer. Verses 4 through 7 is the petition. Now, let's consider his plea. His plea. First of all, verses 8 through 11, in his prayer, in his plea here, he's, dealing, he's, he's going over some past dealings. The text says, You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Using the metaphor of a vine, the psalmist recalls the redemptive history of Israel. God loves to be reminded of his redemptive history, of what he has done in the past for his people. He says, to begin with, God brought Israel out of Egypt as a vine. The symbolism tells us that this plant was a treasured fruit to Israel. So Israel is the treasured fruit. You know, you think of a grapevine. You know, the, 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 the farmer uh, treasures the fruit that that vine produces. And that's what God, how God is looking at Israel and saying, listen, you're, you're my vine. You're my treasured possession. And so often in Scripture, the vine represents God's people. Later, when we get to John 15, it becomes a metaphor for Jesus and his relationship with believers. 
After the Exodus, God expelled the nations in the promised land and planted the vine, planted Israel in their place. He prepared the soil as the vine dresser. He made sure that his plant was deeply rooted. Literally, you have rooted its roots. And then that vine filled the land. And even the cedars were covered with the vine. And here the cedars represent something that is high, something that is lifted up. The great and mighty cedars, even they were covered in the vine. Israel's bowels extended to the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and to the river, that's the Euphrates. Again, you know, the, the, the nation of Israel was originally to comprise everything from the Mediterranean Sea all the way over to the Euphrates River. And the past glory of God's people is intensified here as the psalmist now presents the anguish that they're now facing. And, you know, it's much as true of, of Christians today in this nation. We look back and, oh, well, look at this great time in the history of this nation. Look at this great time in the history of the church. But then we look at where we are today, and, and it ought to bring us anguish uh, because today we look shabby, okay? We, we look worn, we, we, we look ragged. And that's why we need revival. We need a great awakening. Verses 12 through 16, in his plea, he's dealt with the past dealings. Now he's dealing with the present devastation. Why have you broken down its hedges, its fences, so that all who pass that way pick its fruits? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which, is, which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. While the psalmist can accept God's original judgments, he now questions, Lord, why is your wrath continuing? They've broken down the fences. Outsiders have taken the vine's fruit. A wild boar. Interesting. A boar is an unclean animal, Leviticus 11.7. Unclean animals have torn up the roots, literally torn the vine out by its roots and fed on it. That is the catastrophe that has come upon the nation of Israel. And that's a catastrophe that comes upon any nation or any country uh, who turns its back on God. But now the psalmist cries out, Lord, why? Why do you allow it to continue? Is it not time for you to intervene? He addresses God now as the commander, the God of hosts. And he cries out to him, turn your face back to us. Look down from heaven. See the vine. Visit or attend to the vine. The vine needs your attention because it's been burned with fire. That's the fire of God's wrath. It's been cut down. And the cause of this is the rebuke of God's countenance, God's face. Israel perished when they were separated from God. And that is so true today. When we are separated from God, when we cut ourselves off from God, when a nation cuts itself off from God, it'll be rebuked. God will turn his face from them. Now, verses 17 to 19 of the plea gives us a perspective deliverance, a perspective deliverance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself, 
then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Here in verses 17 to 18, the call for action is repeated. He, the psalmist asks for God's hand to be on Israel once again. Let it be on the king, the man of your right hand. Let it be on the son of man, the people whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, that petition wasn't ultimately fulfilled until Christ uh, came. He was the man of God's right hand who certainly revives his people and accomplished salvation. But in praying this prayer here, the psalmist was saying, Lord, Take a hold of the king, take a hold of the leader, Lord, take a hold of the people, and turn them back to you. And when you turn them back, we will not turn back from you again. Revive us. You know, in praying this prayer as a church, we're asking for a visitation, if you will. We're, we're asking for Christ to manifest himself in our presence and cause us to turn back to him. And once God acts, the promise in verse 18 will be secure. God's people will not turn from him. But notice it's his work. Revive us. Give us life. Make us alive. You know, we can't revive ourselves. We need God to create revival. Listen, if it's man-made, you've got an ism. You've got revivalism. And anytime you've got an ism, you're going to result in a schism. True revival is the work of God in the lives of his people. And the result or the consequence of revival is worship. Notice, cause your face to shine upon us, we will be saved. But he says before that, revive us and we will what? Call upon your name. We will worship you. That final refrain repeats verse 7 with one addition. He calls, O Lord, Yahweh, God of hosts. So first it was restore us, then it was God of hosts restore us. Now it's, O Yahweh, Elohim, of hosts. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. He closes with this theme, God must restore his people by turning the light of his face upon them, and in this renewed relationship, they will be saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked why the church in the English-speaking world had not experienced the great revival in the 20th century. And his answer is that the church had accommodated itself to the modern worldview. See, up until that century when the church was weak, sinful, and apathetic, a remnant of godly people got down on their knees, repented, and besieged God to send revival. But what we saw in the 20th century and now into the 21st century is that we've, become, we've so embraced the relativism and the modernism of our world that when we're weak, sinful, and apathetic, we don't humble ourselves. We don't cry out to God. Instead, we try to organize crusades. We try to organize rallies. We try to organize events. Forget the events, forget the crusades, and forget the rallies. What we need to do is humble ourselves and cry out to God. And my friends, genuine revival will not be accomplished in our energy or with any techniques. It is God's alone to give. And so in our crisis, in our time of national crisis, let us call out to the Lord. Restore us. Cause your face to shine. Send the power. Send the Spirit. Manifest your glory. And save us from ourselves. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 80. 
Thank you, Father, for this prayer for national revival. And Lord, if there was ever a time we need revival, it is now. Sin is rampant all around us. The effects of that sin are being seen now more than ever. I pray that as your people, we might open our eyes to see the apathy and the gross sin for what it is. And that, Father, we wouldn't turn around and just be numb to it. That, Father, we wouldn't just turn around and, and say, well, let's embrace this method or let's embrace this technique. Let's try to create this event or this uh, crusade or this man-made whatever. But rather, Father, as we see it, I pray that you would cause us to humble ourselves. I pray that, Lord, not only would we humble ourselves, but we would turn from the wickedness, that we would stand against the wickedness, and, Father, we might cry out to you. Lord, give us revival. Give us revival in this church. Give us revival in every true church of God throughout this land, that, Lord, you might spare us from our own selves. Certainly, Father, your wrath is being poured out. There is no doubt. And so, Father, we don't know how long. We've often asked how long. But, Father, I pray that you might have mercy, on, even if it's just this remnant, that you might have mercy and deliver us. Save us, Father. We pray in your Son's precious name. Amen.